1: A couple of weeks ago, I invited Dr. Sophia Edwards to talk about the diet culture and her work as a health psychologist. I got a fantastic response after this episode, and Sophie definitely debunked some toxic prejudice and educated us on how to make peace with our bodies. Shortly after this episode was released, Dr. Ali Zempner contacted me. She told me that she'd love to contribute to the discussion on fat shaming within the health sector, She's an obesity physician, which is a term I completely misunderstood at first. In fact, I thought her work focused on the complete opposite to what I've now learned that she does. And I'm very grateful that people like Ali exists to change the health industry from within. I hope you will all be as enlightened as I was. And once again, learn that we do not necessarily have to change our bodies in order to get comfortable. It's a society's approach that needs to change. My name is Fanny Beckman and this is Women of My Generation.
2: how Hi. is life in Vancouver at the moment? <laughs> uh, I think life in Vancouver Fanny is pretty much the same as it is everywhere else in the world except uh, Canadian how does that sound and it's raining <laughs> today so that is pretty much all I have for you yes because mm, you've yes. been in lockdown you said for about was it 10 weeks? Um, we, I mean, officially, we started in lockdown, I believe it was, uh, ironically, uh, the 13th, Friday the 13th of March, um, but I've been, um, as a physician, we were sort of preparing to transition our practices to virtual, uh, probably about the week before, so okay. it's been now almost 10 weeks. Yes, Yes
1: you mentioned um, that you aren't VST position, and that's actually a term that I am not familiar with. <laughs> and when you first reached out to me, I kind of misunderstood it. And I think a lot of our listeners haven't really come across this term before. So first of all, could you just explain your job title and what you do on a day-to-day basis?
2: Um, so I uh, have a specialty background in internal medicine, which I guess how you would explain internal medicine at a cocktail party is that it's almost like a pediatrician for grown-ups. So we do a lot of specialty medicine. Um, many internal medicine doctors uh, train to do subspecialty. So for example, cardiology or uh, infectious diseases or uh, respiratory, like uh, pulmonology, those would be subspecialties of, of, of uh, internal medicine. And my subspecialty is obesity medicine, which um, means that I um, uh, see and treat people uh, with obesity. Um, and, and meaning when, I guess, to say what is an obesity physician means to ask the question of what is obesity, quite frankly, because I, I would argue um, obesity itself has been um very much politicized, it's unfortunately been hijacked by dieting communities and um, there's a whole socio-cultural um, stigma, hugely so, um, that automatically uh, is, is very much the picture that we think of when we think of obesity. But pure and simple, when we think of obesity, we need to remember that we're thinking, of we're talking about a disease model. And, and when I say disease, Fanny, understand disease doesn't mean sick. It means that the body physiologically doesn't do what it's supposed to do or what it was intended to do. And that can affect how a person moves through the world. And so obesity is a state where hormonally speaking, remember that our bodies regulate energy and energy metabolism um, in a very much a primitive way. We evolved for thousands and thousands of years to endure famine and harsh conditions. And we have this highly evolved regulatory system that allows us to uh, appropriately use the energy we take in, store some for later, and then use up the rest. Um, Obesity is where that regulatory system doesn't work the way it was intended to. And so the body inappropriately stores fat tissue. Um, mm. And that can affect how a person moves through the world, whether that's physically affect how the person moves to the world, whether it's medically speaking, meaning it can cause other um, diseases to, uh, to manifest. Um, or um, what's fascinating to me nowadays, even more so it can socially and mentally affect how a person moves through the world. And I guess if you think about it, you know, if we think about how uh, physically and medically, that's often manifested by the disease itself, whereas uh, perhaps socially and mentally is manifested by how the world sees people with the disease. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, so to answer your question, (laughs) Uh, you know, you ask a doctor the time and they'll tell you how to make a watch. Um, but, to answer, but to answer your question, what I do is I work with patients um, uh, on treatments uh, for their obesity. Specifically, our philosophy of practice is, can probably be summed up in a few sentences. You know, to tell someone with obesity to just eat less and move more is like telling someone with depression to just cheer up or Mm -hmm. like telling someone with asthma to take deep breaths. And what we do is we focus very much on uh, the three-pronged approach. So we know that genetically, there are huge genetic predispositions to where a person puts their weight, how they carry their weight, that we're as different on the insides as we are on the outside. And we celebrate people's genetics and we Um, We talk about um, very much that this is not a blame experience, this is to help patients uh, live with their disease and adjust their expectations. Um, On the hormonal and biochemical and physiological perspective, we talk a lot about that there are treatments if people want to entertain them. Just like there are treatments for high blood pressure or diabetes or heart disease or Uh, depression and that every patient should be respected for their autonomy to choose whatever treatments um, they want to choose, whether it's, um, you know, there are, for example, medications that are uh, in many patients uh, very effective. Um, I work in also with patients who are pursuing bariatric surgery um, to help them prepare for surgery and to help uh, them adjust to life afterwards. And then there are, of course, uh, environmental factors. So our challenge, I think, as a species is we are polar bears all living in deserts. So we're not made, quite frankly, for this environment. And our environment definitely promotes weight gain um, because of our own innate physiology. Uh, But we don't really talk with patients so much about, quote, dieting, and we don't put anybody in food prisons. We respect that, you know, I would argue 99% of my patients know exactly every diet on the market, that we try and get patients to undiet, to sort of work on um, a healthy relationship with food, because many of them come to us with this idea of probably not so much in the UK, but in North America, food has been moralized and demonized in a binomial um experience where food is good or food is bad and um yeah that's is that the way it is uh, in the uk yeah yeah for sure Uh, ironically the french have it you know bad food in france is a stale croissant it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) um but but we um we try and reclaim that with patients a lot and and it's interesting as i start to explain my practice i realize that we our principles are very much sort of the idea where evidence and empathy meet. So that's always been my sort of slogan, if you will. This idea of there that science prevails, but compassion and science hold hands. And so um, to understand that there, are, you know, it's not a they say phenomenon. We talk about the science, which, um, as with many areas of medicine, the more we learn, the more we realize the more we don't know and so obesity medicine is rather new in that um, although it's a very ancient disease um, our understanding of it is probably really only been legitimized in the last two-ish decades Um, and and then of course our sort of our culture has absolutely not caught up
1: yeah because I'm really glad that you started by telling us what obesity actually is because I feel Mm. like, like you said, it's been hijacked and and, uh, this is like diet culture that says if you're the slightest bigger at all compared to like people in uh, magazines or whatever, then you should go on a diet. And that's obviously not the case at all. And that's kind of why I first didn't know if this podcast was the right platform um, to talk about your work, but you proved me wrong because this is exactly what you do. And you're trying to highlight the diet culture, both in the society, but also in um, the health sector, which is so, so important. Mm. And in your TEDx talk, you talk about this and you present statistics that proves that the diet culture is very much alive, not only in the broader society, but also within kind of your own industry. And for anyone who hasn't seen this TEDx talk yet, <laughs> could you just explain a bit about that? Because that was actually mind-blowing for me, even though I have so many friends and I've had guests in this podcast before who've all shared their own experience of how they've been mistreated by doctors. Right. Um, but then, like seeing the facts that are out there that you presented, that was like so
2: eye-opening to me. So, could you just share that? Yeah. So, I I think when we speak about this, we speak about weight bias, and um, it, you know. Let's be frank, weight bias is the last socially acceptable prejudice that exists in the world. I'm not saying it's the last prejudice in the world and that is absolutely not the case, but it still seems to be the one that's okay. In other words, if you're at a dinner party and someone makes a racial slur, I would absolutely hope there's gonna at least be one person at the table who's gonna make a face or a gender you know if there there's a a, a comment made uh, from a gender or sexuality comment ears are gonna raise. But weight comments, somehow we let them go, no problem. In fact, we might find ourselves even subconsciously laughing at it. And and so when we talk about weight bias, let's understand that yes, weight bias is massive in medicine, but it's everywhere. Um, And and so for example, 60% of patients have been fat shamed by their physicians. Uh, a study done out of the, um, you know, by Rebecca Poole, out of uh, out of um, uh, the Pool Institute in the United States, which is probably one of the large. It's not one of. It's the largest um, uh, academic institute studying weight bias and its effect in the world. Shows that doctors rank number two uh, in terms of a survey. So they gave patients, and these are th- about twenty thousand patients were given a survey of 20 different people and asked to rank those people as to who were the sources of fat shame in their lives. Doctors were number two. Uh, number one were boys on the schoolyard. So we're second to the bully, which to me is devastating. Make no mistake, uh, I think mothers were three. Thank, uh, God love mine. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's... Um, it's a really interesting phenomenon that yes, medicine is massively um, uh, uh, one of its biggest sicknesses right now. Quite frankly, is weight bias. Uh, you know, studies show that um, patients with obesity are examined less by their physicians by a ratio of two to one. So half the time um, that. Not only, you know, does weight bias exist, but it actually affects how patients receive care, um, how doctors practice. Um, You know, for example, one large scale trial in the United States showed that a third of women with obesity who had medical coverage, because in the States, they don't have a socialized healthcare system like we do or you do, um, but but a third of women with obesity had not had a, a pap smear. Um, and the reason for that was because they um, were afraid to go to the physician because they had been fat chained. Mm-hmm. And and that's messed up, that we have a population of people who are being discriminated against by a healthcare field because of the status of their health. That That's like saying that you have a group of of firemen if you will who um are not wanting to put out fires because they don't feel that those fires are appropriately lit and that the person you know like we don't do that you know what i mean so there's yeah, this weird sort of social judgment that's been assigned to this disease and and i think there there's one there's um uh, one, there's a challenge with that because one, medicine at its purest is not a place for judgment. Um, I mean, one of the things I make no mistake, I know my profession has a great deal to answer for. And and I know that weight bias isn't the first bias that this profession has or has had in the past. Um, And and interestingly, you bring up the TED Talk. In the talk, I I talk about, you know, racial biases that have existed in medicine for decades. You know, for example, it's only in 1960 that hospitals in the United States were finally segregated. Like, that's messed up. In 1973, homosexuality was finally taken out of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, where it had been listed as a, a mental illness up until that time like we we have a lot to answer for in medicine um but but i like to think that at its purest and 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 i think we've seen this with this current health crisis in the world the current pandemic that that you know medicine at its purest shouldn't have judgment we shouldn't care how you got into whatever disease you've gotten or how you got it and the only reason we should care is so that we learn how to not transmit the disease um we, we shouldn't k- sorry go ahead
1: i was just saying uh, it's funny how you mentioned the current situation because i've definitely noticed that there's more fat shaming on like yes. social media now more than ever because right. people yeah it's it's crazy because we are living in a pandemic and we have so much more things to worry about but people are just
2: talking about like oh i might get fat and as right. that's the worst thing But yet, so I'll give you an example. 20 years ago, so I always say this. We are in obesity medicine where we were two decades ago in mental health. So 20, 30 years ago, a woman presented to her family doctor's office postpartum, and she said, look, I'm really, really a mess mentally, and I want to kill my kid. And her doctor would say to her, you're just stressed out. You're a mom. Go home. It's no big deal. And nowadays she presents and her doctor screens her for postpartum depression and talks about appropriate treatment. And I don't know about you, but even in Vancouver, we have a postpartum clinic and we appropriately take care of our patients. And what I find fascinating about this is, as you've said, there's fat shaming has risen with COVID, but Mm -hmm. embracing mental health and talking about mental health has become this whole new approach, you know? so i it, it's it's interesting to hear about sort of and, and so it should be like we should be discussing mental health um, but i I just recently wrote a piece about what if uh, obesity was covid nineteen
0: mm-hmm.
2: so think about it if obesity was covid nineteen we'd we'd throw we, we'd actually study it for the pandemic that it is we'd look at the fact that it affects people differently, that some people are affected by obesity different than others. That some people are relatively asymptomatic with it, and some people, it can become a very serious disease that can be life-threatening. That if obesity were COVID-19, we would have tons of scientific data on it. We would respect it for the disease that it was, and most importantly, the world would be massively compassionate towards people with the disease, towards people who were taking care of others with the disease and there wouldn't be this acceptable sort of finger pointing as to how you got it and this shaming associated with it period um you yeah,
1: even gave give an example of um a patient of yours that had been in a car accident and um they were you went to a doctor and they'd said, "Oh, you just have to lose weight," but it was nothing to do with that. They've right. been in
2: accident, right? But the implication was they weren't wearing a seatbelt because, the, and and the patient was like, "I don't get it. What, what was that about?" Or i I mean, um, and we even have data, um, for example, out of the UK. Um, there's no, you know, di- no disrespect to my British country, men and women, but there's. Some really interesting fat shaming that's occurring at the level of, of, you know, healthcare in the UK about there's body mass index requirements, for example, for um, everything from fertility treatments to uh, hip and joint repl- replacements to um, kidney transplants. Now, the the challenge that I have with that is that show me the data. So show me the data that a person. With a body mass, and don't even get me started on the body mass index, which is um, a, a, a very unscientific way that we measure weight, and the data behind it is crap. Um,
1: and you know, it shouldn't I, be applied on on individuals. Should it?
2: No, so in fact, can I swear? Is that well? Yeah, you know, yeah. Your illegitimate cousins in North America. So I call it the bullshit medical index because. Mm-hmm. The BMI actually comes from the late 1700s. It was established by an astrologer. Um, That was back during the time of sort of of social sciences, where we looked um, we looked at sort of um, means and curves and bell curves um, around sort of the time of Pascal and all of that. And and um, it was looked at from it was established from the Flemish army. And a social astro- astronomer, look, or sorry, an astronomer looked at um, masses of white men and came up with small, medium, and large, which is a bell curve, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then in the 1950s, it was adopted by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company because they needed a measurement to gauge um, sort of body size for insurance. Well, who applied for life insurance in the 1950s in the United States? It certainly wasn't you or me. It was white men. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, Ansel Keys, who was uh, the, quote, father of uh, lipidology in North America, who it turns out that much of his data was actually very flawed, adopted the BMI. Um, And if you look at a BMI, all it does is give you um, weight over height squared. So it's literally just your mass on a planet. It's... It tells us nothing. Um, it's the same for men and women. It's the same for ethnocultural groups. It's one basic standard for everybody. Um, since when has that been science? Like, since do you know of any sort of scientific number that gives you that 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 one number applies to every single person in the world? No,
1: it's it's so
2: sad. So I think you know, to, to give you that, that's sort of where we are at. Now, the the challenge with that, and this is something, I guess, on the, on the converse side is I, I almost, I don't defend my profession, but I, I understand where some of this comes from, where the sort of origins of weight bias in medicine are. Um, and that's because twofold. Um, one, in medicine, we're trained to recognize patterns. That's part of our, um, you know, you're a photographer. So I would imagine you have a process of how you see the world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Right. Um, In medicine, we're trained to see the world through patterns. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, and so we look for pattern recognition. I mean, we see it with, with COVID, right? So if you have a fever and you have a cough and you have the rivalries and you have this, then this is sort of what we look for. And so in obesity, our challenge is that we we train to recognize patterns. Um, so unfortunately and erroneously, we're only doing what we were trained to do. But the issue is this, is that one, the patterns that we now recognize are socio-cultural ones that have been manifested by the world around us because medicine didn't teach us obesity. I mean, I. I talk to you about you know the the physiology and the genetics and the pathophysiology of this disease i wasn't taught any of that in my training and uh in fact i now started an organization called the obesity project that teaches uh students medical students and residents about obesity because the idea was they have to learn it early Um, and we also teach colleagues so primary care physicians, internal medicine uh, doctors, specialists, et cetera, about the disease itself. Um, But because we as physicians were trained by mainstream society, we're subjected to the same biases as everybody. And so that's part of our challenge. And and again, this idea of of bias, if you look to the world around us, I mean, 70% of people are fat shamed at work. Uh, 75% of all images uh, in the media portray obesity in a negative light. You know, think about it in your own everyday life, Have uh, you know, although your world's a little different, but when's the last time, I, I can only think of two movies or, or television shows or what have you, where... Um, uh, uh, it's usually a woman, it's not usually a man, where um, uh, a man or woman with extra weight is not the butt of the joke, um, or is the star of the show, and where the their weight is not sort of uh, the, the issue that they're discussing. You know, w- we only celebrate people for the weight they lose. We don't celebrate them for the lives they live. And
0: no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
1: yeah and also that's that's another thing like losing weight is not always a goal either it can be a sign yeah. of depression or or some an, an illness in itself and people just always assume like once someone has lost
2: the weight oh congratulations but it could actually right. be horrible behind it right and i guess the issue here is that this idea, and I know this is happening right now in the world because of Adele and this whole, um, you oh, know, yeah. yeah, right. This whole experience, but but ne- you're sort of screwed because then it, it becomes about a number. So, you know, um, this idea that she must be healthier because she's smaller. I mean, what the hell is that? Like, that just seems ridiculous. We, we know that health is a process. It's multifaceted. It's not this black and white sort of binomial experience. And more importantly, it's very personal. And so, you know, um, I think that what we have done in in the dieting world and in, in the sort of mainstream culture is we've assigned um, almost moralistic uh, labels to specific Sizes um, in every area. So you know, um, I know that in in certain circles we've assigned well. You know, um, th- you know, uh, less weight is good, more weight is bad, and and conversely, there are circles where you know, even talking about weight loss. I mean, I go to meetings and I'm I'm on you know, I'm often battling my colleagues to discuss with them the importance of sort of highlighting treatment for patients. And then I'm having to have conversations with um, others about the fact that, oh, how dare I say that there's, that we should even be advocating weight loss. That's just a sign. And I'm like, just, let's just not have this binomial yes or no why can't it be according to an individual um you know do you know what i'm saying you know if gender can if gender can be fluid then why can't size Mm. yeah that's so so true
1: because again like i've had so many people um both friends but also guests in this podcast saying that you know how they've been mistreated by doctors and mm-hmm. they are not even obese like they but they've been told like in order to get breast reduction they need to lose weight or in order to um you know treat their pcos they need to lose right. weight or whatever and it's and even then like pcos one of the symptoms is that you struggle to lose weight but right. i've had people saying like oh and i uh, like working really hard to Uh, Lose weight and do what they've been told, but still it didn't improve their health at all. So it's kind of just feels like a quick fix for a lot of uh, doctors and lots of doctors. But which is ironic in itself, because like I said, one of the biases is that um, bigger bodies and bigger people are lazy. But in fact, when I hear all this, I'm like, it sounds, sounds a bit like the doctors don't take them seriously and that they are, in a way, lazy and don't actually go to the bottom with the problem. It's just like, oh, if you lose weight, everything will be fine.
2: Right, and often we we, we do that. Now, now, I will say this. I think what you're dealing with there is at the core of it is that you have a population of people who have been marginalized and, and sort of told that they have to manage their own disease, right? So they've been told, here's the problem, just lose weight and you'll solve it. And there's this subtle... Um, subversive message of you got yourself into this you get yourself out and so that's the problem the solution to that is what if these you know these guests on your podcast so for example i'll give you a perfect example realistically there's probably some medical validity we know for example and now pcos is a really interesting one because It's a hormonal uh, abnormality or an endocrinopathy that has to do with uh, ovarian cysts forming. Uh, What's what's fascinating about PCOS is that it's it's a bit of a black box in medicine. We don't fully understand it completely. And in fact, um, there's different diagnostic criteria. There's different treatment criteria. We know that in some patients, uh, PCOS can be uh, you know, symptoms, etc., can be improved with weight loss, but mm-hmm. rather than like what, what you're dealing with is a person who comes to the doctor says, you have PCOS, go lose weight. Mm-hmm. The problem that's missing there is not even the, I mean, weight bias is obviously there, but what's more striking to me about a story like that, and I hear it all the time, is the lack of communication that has happened. And You know, I have conversations with patients all the time, and what if those conversations were longer than three sentences? What if they were, here's the situation, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here are some factors that could improve things, we think, and here are some things that could not. And now you're having a conversation, you're probably talking about weight loss, but There's not the same assignment of blame or negativity or, you know, uh, what have you. And I I think that that's part of the huge issue here. It's interesting how, um, I mean, even our interaction was kind of an example of that, that when you first heard about me, you thought, "Uh uh-oh, no, she's one of those who's going to just tell people to lose weight. This woman is not for my podcast. And then... After, you know, we, we sort of almost had a pseudo conversation in that you had heard me speak on a TED talk about what I really was discussing. And, and here we are actually having a real conversation about it. So I think if I'm really going to make, you know, use my diagnostic brain, mm-hmm. part of the, the real um, issue here, the real disease is miscommunication and this sort of presumption. Um, And and that's, I think, what's happening across the board where we've become almost so tribal, if you will, in our belief systems um, that we've stopped listening to one another in many respects. And even worse, we we only surround ourselves with opinions that we agree with, you know? I just yeah. read Madison Albright's um, uh, most recent book, and she said it's so important to be exposed to ideas that you don't necessarily agree with, just so you can help um, be exposed to different parts of the world, but also so that you can help reform your own um, world view. and And I wonder if that's part of the challenge. And and I I completely understand why that's not the case in medicine. I mean. The demands of healthcare nowadays, and I'm not defending my profession, but a reality is, is the average primary care physician or family doctor spends 10 minutes with a patient. I mean, um, I'm fortunate that I my initial visits with a patient are an hour, my follow-ups are 15 minutes. I have a whole healthcare team that works with me. Um, you know, we establish long-term relationships with patients. Absolutely. But even then, I would argue, I don't know that we do a good enough job of really understanding where a person is coming from necessarily. Um, yeah, that uh, makes such a difference to build that trust as well. Right, right. But, like, for
1: people who experience that phobia within the health yeah. sector, what, what, what advice do you have to them? Because it can be really difficult if you sit right. in that room, and, and what can you say? What are their rights?
2: so so it's interesting so uh, i'm gonna do a real shameless plug i um started an organization as i mentioned called the obesity project and we have a website called no fat shame um it's nofatshame.com and on the website we even have um the the idea behind all of this is sort of if you were to crystallize it it's um mind mouth eyes and hearts so uh, i would say i think twofold um Uh, if one is from a mind perspective, I think understanding whether or not you yourself have bias. And I think understand that even as a patient, you probably have a weight bias because we were all the kids on the schoolyard. So on the schoolyard, you're either the bully, you're the bullied, or you're the kid in the corner who's just praying that it's not going to be you. And so we've all been exposed to bias. And so I think the first thing I would even say is we should check ourselves and make sure that our bias isn't there to begin with. Um, That's uh, that's one. Um, There's, um, and actually the reason I say this is on the website, you can actually take the Harvard implicit bias test and see what kind of weight bias that you actually have, because many of my patients actually have weight bias. And so There's what's what's referred to in medicine as actually a felt victimization, which is very real, but part of it comes from our own biases. So that's one. The the second um, thing is mouth. And I think that it's about language. And so on the one hand, that person sitting in that doctor's office should know that language is everything and that we can use our words um, to, not just to hurt, but we can use our words to heal and to clarify. And so I, I would say to a the patient that the patient can say to the physician, I totally hear you, but I need you to understand that although I am sure that you didn't meant to make me feel this way, here's how I actually feel when you say that to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And any physician who reacts defensively or negatively to that, I, I promise you that that doctor is not going to leave, go, go away that day and forget that interaction. Right. So that the patient can at least leave knowing that he or she has left a mark. And maybe nothing will happen, but maybe that doctor will go away and go, huh, I, I got to change my approach. And there's that. And then, on the other hand, the doctor themselves um, and all of us in society, we really need to watch our words. You know, it's interesting. I use the term obesity all the time. And I know that that's a heated topic, but you'll never hear me use the term obese other than right now. Um, okay. We use people first language. So, um, it is not a 36-year-old obese woman. It is a 36-year-old woman with obesity. Um, you'll notice I don't use the F word, uh, F-A-T. Um, I use people who carry uh, carry weight. Um, I know that there's some debate uh, even in social media and that on increased weight or what have you or excess weight or extra weight. Um what I often do with patients is specifically ask them what terms they are most comfortable with. Um, I have quite a few friends who call themselves fat. Absolutely. And that's totally fine. But I'll give you an example in, um, and I had a patient probably, well, would have been back in sort of December, January, and she um, was this, uh, she is this just fabulous, i mean all my patients are fabulous but she i'm smiling because she's just this she's this badass feminist and uh who uh, i smile quite proudly that she has trusted me with her health um uh because she's had a number of negative experiences in the healthcare uh world and um and it's funny in our office we have a lot of uh Uh, you know, I I was really careful about the imagery uh, that I put up. So we have a lot of feminist uh, books and feminist imagery. We don't have fashion magazines in our office. We don't have uh, sort of those sorts of pictures. So we were really conscious of that. And uh, she walked into my office the first day and I had uh, uh, Chimamande Ngochi's We Should All Be Feminists sitting on the coffee table in the office. And she went, okay, you can be my doctor. (laughs) And I was like, okay, fine. I said, but I haven't done anything yet. So let me just pass the second test. And (laughs) she uses the term, uh, fat. And she said to me, why do you have such a problem with that? And I said, I don't have a problem with using that word when we're in the room, you and I together, but in my waiting room, there are people in the waiting room where that word is really painful and is a source of terror. And so although this is your experience and you want to reclaim that word, not everybody wants to. And so, and it was, it was fascinating for me to be sort of the vehicle to educate her about a different open-mindedness. And Mm -hmm. she just sort of looked at me and went, huh, I, I never thought of it like that. And I said, you know, in your reclamation of that word, understand that, yes, this is a revolution, but not everybody we're not all running towards you know the revolution cart quite yet some of us are a little bit slower to get on board that train uh, because we're not there yet Um, so I think sorry
1: and I was just going to say it goes back to what we talked about before like communication is everything Um, and obviously you said now that you could you were able to educate her and just like we are kind of talking about this whole topic before and you definitely taught me loads um doing our conversation so it's again like we just have to talk about it and make ourselves more aware of both our own uh, bias and prejudice but also um talk to others and understand
2: that we don't see the world the same way the same way and and again so we have mind we have mouth our language and the words that we use, the jokes that we laugh at, the conversations that we have. And then we have imagery, which is where you Fanny Beckman come in, um, <laughs> which is we need to fill this planet with a bunch of, I am so tired of headless images in beige. Have you mm-hmm. noticed that? That every time we talk about weight on the media, they cut off the heads and they have these headless bodies in yeah. beige And all you see is a hand with some sort of large piece of food. Like it's just maddening. And if you go on nofatshame.com, you'll see one of my uh, favorite photos of this woman underwater. That is, it is the most joy. Like I'm getting emotional talking about it. It is the most (laughs) joyful photo I have ever seen. Um, Mm. And um your are like the images I I said to you before we started recording that one picture of that woman in the bathtub yeah. is just magic <laughs> and I I think it goes to this idea you know we we and and you know I'm I'm a big fan of there's some real huge trailblazers in social media right now you know Jamila Jamil with her I weigh campaign yeah. and uh you know there's your fat friend and there's a uh, a whole body positive campaign um and i I want a space for us to celebrate people for the lives that we live and not the weight that we lose yeah. i mean that's so Adele, true and right yeah, Adele is a fabulous, beautiful um musical fricking powerhouse period. Yeah. I really don't give a shit what size dress she wears. Is it like whatever. So like it and it shouldn't matter either way that that's, you know, it's an interesting thing. But um, uh, but but I would argue this, you know, these ideas that we need to transform the definition of beauty. Um, and there's some really interesting science, you know, the scientists and me, there's some really interesting scientific data about where bias comes from. Um, there's actually a brilliant uh, book that itself is called Bias. It's written by, um, uh, a uh, social psychologist out of uh, Berkeley, California. She actually lives in California and works um, with the, uh, Calif- I think it's the LA police department or uh, one of the police departments in California. And there's some, remember that bias is born because we are a tribal species and we needed to have a way 100,000 years ago to be able to distinguish between um, our tribe and a saber toothed tiger because a saber tooth tiger wasn't gonna feed us and it wasn't gonna take care of us. So there had to be sort of visual ways for us to be able to st- distinguish between self and not self. And so there's primitive parts of our brain that input images from the world around us to help us make that worldview. Well, the problem is, is we have um, cri- you know, almost criminalized or corrupted those images. And Mm -hmm. so we've been taught from a very young age that, you know, um, you and I were talking earlier, I have, I have, um, I am currently suffering from quarantine hair, I have this massive, you know, I joke that my hair has a postal code now. But (laughs) I was taught as a kid that, you know, that the the sweater set girl, the blonde, perfect, straight, beautiful, that that was the idea of beauty. And I was this and, you know, quote, unfortunate-looking child with very large hair and a unibrow, and that was a real problem. Um, but what if, you know, we had images for kids and teenagers and grown-ups alike, and that, you know, and, and so I think we need to start. We're, we're doing it, but we're not doing it fast enough. You know. Um, Uh, Ari Cohn has, um, has several coffee table books now um, uh, on beauty in women and men over 60. Um, Advanced style is his movement, looking at sort of the idea that age should not define beauty. But what if we had, um, you know, ideas that size should, like, since when is it that size defines beauty or, um, and I, I just think that's, that idea of positive imagery um, and sort of positive messaging, that we should be talking people first um, and the lives that they live and not the weight that they lose. And then I I guess, sorry. Yeah,
1: no, I was just gonna say, I think that's absolutely so true. And we just need to keep remind ourselves of that.
2: Um, But for like we wrap it up, do you feel hopeful about the future? Oh, for God's sake. Yes. I'm a doctor. If I didn't feel hopeful, I wouldn't get out of bed any morning. <laughs> I mean, I, I joke that, you know, my friends always say you're incredibly optimistic. I'm like, yeah, now more than ever, there's work to be done. Right. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful because for so many reasons, I'm hopeful because I, I know the science and I, yeah, I'm frustrated and yeah, I realize that, um, that it, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of injustice in this world and there's a lot of wrong, but I don't know. um, What's that saying? There is nothing so wrong in the world that what is so right in the world can't fix. And I guess that's what I hold to. I, I have seen, I mean, I've been in obesity medicine for 20 years now and I have met the most, I am surrounded every day by the most resilient smart brave beautiful graceful badass health warriors who just want a little bit more out of life um and that what that is is so individual for them and to you know continue despite um and not even despite but because um of their challenges to demand for better and i i i love that the system is in their hands and so i i think yeah i i'm hopeful because of conversations like this one where you know you reach out from uh, uh, look and if an obesity doctor from vancouver canada can have a positive hopeful conversation with a portrait photographer from London, England during a lockdown in a pandemic about building a better world, despite a couple of, you know, technical difficulties beforehand, Mm. then, man, isn't that the definition of hope for the future? (laughs) It truly is.
1: I'm so glad that we actually managed to do this.
0: us.